Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Millions of tourists visit Holocaust museums and memorials every year. Holocaust tourism is a thriving industry and plays a crucial role in Holocaust memorialization and remembrance. However, Holocaust tourism is not without criticism. Some argue that sightseeing at sites of mass genocide is cringeworthy, offensive, inappropriate, and superficial. In Postcards from Auschwitz, Holocaust Tourism and the Meaning of Remembrance, Daniel Reynolds examines the phenomenon of Holocaust tourism, its implication on Holocaust remembrance, and what we can learn from tourists taking selfies at Auschwitz. Postcards from Auschwitz transports the reader to a variety of museums and memorial sites around the world to unpack the phenomenon of Holocaust tourism. Daniel Reynolds is Seth Richards Professor in Modern Languages in the Department of German Studies at Grinnell College. Hello, Daniel, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So Postcards from Auschwitz is somewhat of a divergence from your previous research. What made you want to write a book on Holocaust tourism? Uh, that's a great question, a fun question to, to reflect on. Uh, so uh, the reason for for turning to this topic really comes from my own uh, experiences as a traveler as a visitor to sites of holocaust memory that uh, i i've uh, i began uh, in earnest about now about 11 years ago or so as part of my uh, position here at Grinnell College we had an opportunity to uh, participate i had an opportunity to participate in a faculty development trip uh, to sites of holocaust memory in 2007, and part of that travel uh, in- involved a lot of planning and discussion about where we would go, what we would see, and what would be the appropriate ways to engage with the places that we saw. And in the course of our discussions, uh, I-, I-, I noticed this recurring motif, uh, and uh, that was that we were a- really anxious to reassure ourselves that we were traveling to these sites, not as tourists, but as researchers or as educators. And I was really intrigued by the difference or the implied difference between those two identities. And I wanted to really think hard about why is it that uh, we are so quick, generally speaking, to avoid the label of tourist particularly in the context of something as serious as the Holocaust. Uh, on one hand, it's obvious. It's, it's a very a serious topic, and tourism is usually associated with what is frivolous or superficial. But I was also very aware of the fact that we would be, in every visible way, uh, showing up as tourists. We would arrive on a bus uh, when we went to visit the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial, we would uh, be walking together in a group led by a guide. Uh, there would be an opportunity to get refreshments if, we, if it was very hot outside and we needed something to drink. Uh, there's a bookstore on the site. Uh, so there were all kinds of uh, questions I had about what it means to be a tourist uh, 
uh, or a visitor of any kind to a place like Auschwitz in particular. That was sort of the starting point. And this led me into uh, a field that I was previously not very familiar with, and that's the field of tourism studies, uh, which uh, I found uh, was really helpful in helping me begin to think about this, this question about what it means to be a tourist. And it also uh, prov- presented an opportunity to think about other ways of approaching Holocaust memory and representation. So my own field is in really in literary studies. And I wanted to think about tourism as yet another kind of medium through which we encounter or represent the Holocaust and saw here an opportunity to maybe apply some of the interpretive strategies of literary studies and literary analysis to another kind of cultural phenomenon, namely tourism, and see if it would be possible to wed some of the insights that um, Holocaust studies and uh, in particular, have have developed over the years to the phenomenon of tourism to Holocaust memorial sites. So that that is really the impetus for writing the book, and um, it's a question I still engage with. and And it's it's not necessarily a settled topic for me, but I, I um, still find the question of uh, the notions of various kinds of identities that one has or associations one has with tourism to be a fascinating topic, and especially in the context of, of the Holocaust. You mentioned early in the book that um, more than 2 million people visited the Auschwitz-Birkenau um, Museum and Memorial in 2016. And other Holocaust museums, such as Yad Vashem in Jerusalem and the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., welcome similar numbers of visitors on a yearly basis. Um, why, in your estimation, is Holocaust tourism so popular? And who visits, in, if you can sort of give me an idea, who in general visits these types of memorials and museums? That's a, a, a great question. I think the, um, there are a number of reasons for, for why these uh, destinations, and these, these three in particular, I think, uh, so, so Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., and Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, in Poland, are especially um, heavily visited sites. There are other sites that are important to Holocaust memory in, uh, in the experience of the Holocaust that are less frequently visited, that are far more remote. I'm thinking in particular about some of the other extermination camp sites like uh, Belzec and Maidan, or not less so Maidanic, but Belzec, uh, Sobibor in, uh, in particular. But that aside, these these places, I think, are... Uh, have become very central to the various uh, national narratives that uh, are uh, sort of uh, played out at each of the locations. So the the USHMM in Washington is informed in a very important way by the its placement on the Mall in Washington D.C. among all of these other uh, landmarks, and it's a a space where. Americans imagine and engage with their history in, a, in an evolving way. And so um, the question about how the Holocaust is remembered in the American context or uh, the Israeli context or the Polish context are becoming very uh, interesting questions uh, as the memory of the Holocaust is becoming more and more global. Uh, I think there are, the, there are a number of other factors. I think it's also the case that um, 
that there's an awareness that we are entering a period when the last living witnesses uh, and survivors of the Holocaust will uh, will will depart, and we won't have the same kind of immediacy to Holocaust lived memory that we currently have. And I think that's lent a sense of urgency on the part of many people to visit these these places uh, as if to go to the place where it happened could somehow compensate for the impending loss of direct lived memory. I, I don't know if I answered all aspects of your question. Yeah, no, you did. You did. Another thing I want to talk about is the title of the book. Um, you use the image of a postcard as an emblem of tourism, which explains the title, Postcards from Auschwitz. Um, tell me a little bit more about the image of the postcard and why it is representative of the tourist experience. Sure. So I think, uh, again, that I think one of the things that uh, I, I, I remember from my first visit to Auschwitz uh, in 2007, uh, something my colleagues and I talked about was the sort of uh, surprise uh, that there were that there were postcards uh, for sale at the site. Uh, and one, on one hand, that surprise seems kind of naive in retrospect. Of course, there would be uh, uh, any kind of uh, memorial site that is, a museum also needs to uh, have ways of of uh, bringing in additional uh, proceeds and uh, also uh, people still want souvenirs of places they visited. Uh, that seems very strange to talk about that in the context of the Holocaust. So that, that kind of discomfort uh, around a very common tourist practice in the context of a very profoundly disturbing place uh, was uh, one of the impetuses for the choice of, of postcards as, as the image for the book. But I also think that postcards are more complicated than meets the eye. I, I think uh, there's a way to look at the kind of postcards that are for sale at Auschwitz. I spend a little bit of time in the book talking about the um, typical aesthetic one encounters of postcards for sale at Auschwitz, uh, which usually involve spaces that are empty of any human beings. So there are usually no human figures in the postcards. It's just a, an abandoned uh, landscape. Uh, that represents a kind of forlornness and also the, the remoteness of the event into the past. Uh, but the other side, other uh, other aspect of postcards that I think is worth thinking about is the way that uh, people uh, inscribe the back of postcards. And so uh, a postcard is an opportunity to vouch for one's having been to a place, but also in a sense uh, for one to, uh, to inscribe that memory uh, with their their own agency, so to apply their own words to the experience that um, that they've encountered, and I think this is very important in the case of Holocaust tourism because I think it's an event that is so heavily represented and so over determined by so many uh, uh, different necessities uh, that uh, it can be overwhelming. I think for for uh, many people who are uh, trying to engage with the Holocaust to figure out what the right response is or what can one say that could possibly be meaningful. And postcards are an opportunity to do that, to make some moment, have a moment of reflection on the site and inscribe the memory that one has onto, a, uh, onto some remnant from that site. So I think I wanted to get at the ambiguity of the phenomenon of holo Holocaust tourism, both the 
unavoidable commercial dimension of it. Uh, tourism always has these commercial connotations, and I think for many, that is uh, a disturbing aspect of the phenomenon of Holocaust tourism. But you can't separate that commercial aspect from the other more um, subjective uh, possibility for individual tourists to use postcards as a way to engage with their memories. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the history of Holocaust tourism. When did the first museums and memorials, um, well, when were they created? And then when did Holocaust tourism start becoming popular? Yeah, the, the earliest Holocaust memorials and museums really were uh, the, 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 the liberated camps. Uh, and uh, these were often uh, the result of efforts by survivors who wanted to preserve the, uh, the places uh, of their torment uh, so that uh, what, what, what it had been experienced there would not be forgotten uh, by future generations um, and that the perpetrators would not go unpunished. So that was certainly the case at Auschwitz. Actually, prior to, uh, which, which was opened uh, as a museum, Within two years after its liberation in January of forty-five, the uh, even prior to Auschwitz, the Majdanek camp outside of Lublin in Poland had been established as a memorial site by the Red Army uh, in nineteen—I uh, uh, want to say forty-four. I don't have the the book in front of me at the moment, but or that particular page, but. Uh, the, uh, so there was already a determination to preserve these sites as sites of education and evidence for future trials uh, and for history before the world, uh, world War II came to an end and while the Holocaust was still unfolding. The, the, at the, after the war, uh, Warsaw uh, had a, the Ghetto Heroes Memorial uh, established uh, very, very early on after the war as well. Um, so the earliest, the early years of, of sort of Holocaust memorialization, uh, were local efforts for the most part. So uh, efforts by local communities to remember, uh, lost loved ones to, uh, to lost, lost neighbors. Um, but the phenomenon of tourism, uh, to these sites, that's a little harder to speak about. I think the, uh, in the early years, uh, so, uh, Taking again Auschwitz as an example, the first visitors to the camps would be Polish school children in school groups going to the camps, or members of the uh, military who, for whom a visit to the camp was part of their training, uh, to sort of expose them to the evils of fascism and uh, expose them to the um, to the benevolence of of the Red Army that liberated the camp, and so there was a definite ideological uh, bent to uh, tourism to sites of Holocaust remembrance from the very beginning. Uh, also, the same could be said at Dachau, uh, uh, although that wasn't open as a camp until much later, that these all of these sites were embedded within the context of the Cold War. Uh, so, um, And in because of the Cold War and because of the difficulty of traveling across the Iron Curtain, it was really difficult to imagine a kind of global tourism practice that could easily cross from one border to the next. And that all really changed uh, in the, uh, in the nineties with the, with the uh, collapse of uh, the, with the end of the cold war, the opening of the Berlin wall and the, 
opening of the borders between Eastern Europe and, uh, and Russia and the West. And so I think uh, the, the ability to access these sites uh, was, the, was uh, a major impetus to con- uh, present-day tourism, uh, the era of mass tourism. And that's when you see the numbers of visitors to places like Auschwitz or um, some of the other camps, uh, also to, the, to Warsaw uh, and the ghetto uh, ruins, when you see those numbers start to climb dramatically. Um, the, uh, but the, so I perceive, I think of the Holocaust, of Holocaust tourism, which really began to take off in the nineties as one more piece of what other scholars like Andreas Huysen have called the memory boom, uh, which started, um, in earnest, I would say, uh, in the late seventies, many scholars date it with the airing of the NBC miniseries Holocaust which began a public discussion about the Holocaust in the United States in ways that had not taken place before. And then a couple of years later, it was shown in, uh, in Germany in West Germany with the same kind of impact in terms of opening up public discourse. So, um, so the, the entry of the Holocaust into kind of public, uh, discourse, uh, almost guaranteed that tourism would be sure to follow behind uh, very soon. And that's what happened. Holocaust tourism and creating public memorials at sites of mass atrocity is not without criticism. And one of the harshest critiques you share in the book um, is that of historian Tim Cole, who likened the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum to, uh, and I'm quoting, a Holocaust theme park. Um, Why do Holocaust memorial sites and museums elicit such strong reactions? And are these criticisms fair? Sure. I think that's uh, a question uh, that I uh, continue to wrestle with. I think one has to take those criticisms very seriously. I think that they come from a place of concern about the nature of Holocaust memory and uh, the unavoidable uh, aspects of tourism that bring commercial considerations to bear. Uh, I think it's just impossible to ignore that. Um, I think, Tim Cole is not the only person who's made that comparison by any means. Uh, even Art Spiegelman, the the designer of Mouse, has made the comparison of uh, to Auschwitz as a, uh, with a theme park. Um, my own response to that uh, that charge is that it, at least in my experience and in the experience of many of the people that I've spoken to who travel to these places, their experience is not the experience of a visitor to a theme park. The um, I think at root in this discussion about Auschwitz as a theme park is the question of authenticity and to call a place like Auschwitz, uh, inauthentic, uh, which is, I think the gist of what, what the theme park allegation, uh, really does is I think doing a disservice to the nature of the site, the kinds of memorialization and preservation and education that, do take place there. Uh, I don't want to pretend that that everything is uh, perfect at these sites in terms of how they are memorialized and preserved and presented to the public. So I think there are, particularly at Auschwitz one, the, uh, the the so-called Stammlager, the first part of the camp um, that was opened um, prior to Birkenau. Uh, there were there are national exhibits in several of the barracks buildings, and each each of each exhibit has a tells the story of a, a, a Jewish uh, 
prisoners at Auschwitz, uh, deportees to Auschwitz from that country, and that national experience of the Holocaust as it played out in uh, in uh, in Auschwitz. And some of those exhibits have been more uh, successful than others. Uh, and but it does lend a certain there's certainly a thematic. Uh, structuring of the visit to Auschwitz that uh, if one wants to think of theme park in that sense, but I don't find it in any way hokey or um, uh, inauthentic or dishonest. I think it's, it, it can be very educational. Um, It's developed. uh, So these, these barracks have uh, are kept up to a certain kind of standards. uh, So they're, they're safer for so many people to visit, uh, the, the exhibition has to be visible and legible. So that necessitates some alteration of the site to lend itself to tourism. But then one goes to Birkenau usually after the visit to Auschwitz one, and one sees a far less developed place, a place that really is a landscape of ruins. Uh, most of the barracks were dismantled after the war. Um, and, there are some barracks that remain. Some of them are facsimiles reconstructed to give people a sense of what uh, they would have looked like uh, during the Holocaust nearly 80 years ago. And there is some restoration work being done at Birkenau, but I think we have to consider the ways in which reconstruction and development and preservation um, do not necessarily invalidate the authenticity of the site. I think it's incumbent upon places like Auschwitz to be very transparent with their visitors about what has changed since the past, uh, since uh, since 1945, so that the uh, authenticity is in the um, honesty of the presentation of the site, both in terms of its history during the Holocaust, but also in terms of its post history, the post Holocaust history. So it's it's. Uh, nearly 80 year existence now as a memorial site is part of the story. So, um, so I would, I I think the other part of the, the concern about the theme park is that it was that how it relegates tourists to the position of people who are basically thrill seekers or, um, bad actors in the travel in, 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 in terms of Holocaust memory, whose in, interests in the site are not sincere implicitly uh, and who may be sort of um, motivated by some kind of morbid curiosity. And even if that were the case, and I, I don't doubt that one could find examples of those kinds of travelers, but I'm hesitant to therefore uh, suggest that the, the the majority of tourists to places like Auschwitz fit that description. Even if that were the case, I think the visit to the camp memorial can be quite stunning, quite uh, quite transformational for for many visitors. And I want to take seriously the res- the impact of visit to a place like Auschwitz and, and many of the other camp memorials, but also museums. Uh, and uh, other memorial sites. I want to take seriously the impact impact those kinds of visits can have. Uh, and I think the theme, the term theme park, does a disservice to those serious experiences that many people uh, vouch for. I want to turn to talking about tourists and the perception of tourists and tourism. Um, it's a theme that um, 
is traced throughout the book. And you even mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today how when you would initially when you were initially visiting these sites, you would in your head you were going as an educator, not as a tourist. Um, and so it seems to me, especially now, as I was reading your book, it seems to me that much of the criticism about Holocaust tourism rests on the extremely negative perceptions of tourists um, and almost like anti-Americanism is what it sort of seemed like to me at times, um, which you kind of, which you do mention in the book. Um, and tourists are sometimes rightly perceived as vulgar, frivolous, inappropriate, superficial, and ill-prepared to visit these sites. But as you, as you sort of just were discussing, um, that certainly isn't always the case, that's for sure. Um, so where did this negative perception of tourism and tourists come from? And is there a connection to this perception with a sort of an anti-American sort of feeling? Thank you. That's a, I, a, that's a question that I, I uh, still uh, engage with. I think the, the answer to this, the, where, where does this negative perception of tourists uh, come from, I think really has to be looked at in the longer history of tourism in general. Uh, so if we think about the origins of modern tourism anyway, we think about um, uh, most scholars will point to the, the grand tour, which was the educational tour that, uh, that uh, young, usually men uh, from uh, middle, upper middle classes would take at the end of their education to sort of complete their, their maturation by uh, traveling abroad and encountering sites of cultural importance, practicing their language skills. Uh, and it was a sign of having achieved a certain educational status uh, and was the preserve of the well-to-do for the most part. And so when the advent of mass travel comes onto the scene uh, with uh, modern technology, industrialization, um, urbanization, and eventually, of course, uh, plane travel, uh, I think the the entry of the masses into the tourist realm uh, upset this notion we might have had of tourism as a space, uh, uh, the preserve of the well-to-do elite uh, who saw tourism as education, often without kind of a more critical look at the you know inherently colonialist aspects of tourism. The um, so I, that's that's where I would see the origins of the negative perception, uh, and you know, again, there, all of these 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 characterizations. There's of course some basis, uh, some legitimate basis in in reality for for the negative uh, perceptions. There are certainly tourist practices that one could take exception to, um, particularly around some of the more. Some aspects of tourism, the so-called 3S tourism, uh, the sea, sun, and sand uh, that um, are often don't reveal tourists at their best. But uh, tourism is a very diverse practice. It's uh, what the UNESCO calls the world's largest industry. There are so many forms of tourism, so many new and emerging forms of tourism that I, I think to just characterize tourists, tourism in general, even mass tourism, uh, by one variant of it is problematic. And, you know, as an American who uh, I grew up in a family uh, that was able to do some uh, very interesting international travel um, because of a father who was in the military and stationed overseas, you know, I became very aware of the perception of the ugly American, as we say, the the American tourist, and, and have encountered such a tourist on a few occasions myself. 
So I understand where the stereotype comes from. I do think the uh, stereotype of the American tourist with the, the usually with the, the sort of Hawaiian T-shirt and the camera around the neck and speaking too loudly. Um, I think that names a more general anxiety uh, that comes around the fact that that tourism is a global phenomenon, and so any uh, the 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 way in which Americans uh, the American presence in tourism is 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 kind of has a global reach. At the same time, though, the um, the you know, other travelers participate in in this uh, in this enterprise, this global enterprise, and I think Americanization or American. Uh, becomes a shorthand way of referring to the troubling aspects of globalization. If we think of globalization as homogenization, uh, as the the sort of the spread of Hollywood values of aesthetics to the rest of the world, I think that is uh, often named as American, even though other places participate in the very same phenomenon and often are the origins of that phenomenon. Um, so. I think uh, I I do think it names something that um, is not really just American. I think America certainly has a, a plays a figurative role in that in that kind of dealing with this this more global phenomenon, um, in which the United States no doubt plays a major role, but is by no means it's no by no means a unilateral relationship. It's more complex. There are other players involved, and um, I think. Uh, I want to get at some of the ways in which uh, globalization, uh, you know, uh, and modern technologies are transforming experiences in ways that uh, are can't really be reduced to their to parallels with perceived notions of American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to transition to talking specifically about the museums that you talk about in the book, um, with regards to. I guess, memorialization more broadly. Um, Museums, as you're well aware, are not neutral. They tell a very carefully crafted story. And certain events, people, or perspectives may be prioritized over others, resulting in vastly divergent memorializations of the Holocaust. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on this and how Holocaust museums differ in the stories that they tell. Sure. So um, I, I think the um, maybe I'll, I'll try to pick examples from. I, so my book focuses uh, in particular on sites in so the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, uh, the uh, various sites in Warsaw, uh, the, uh, the Ghetto Museum, for example, the Ghetto Uprising, the or the Warsaw Uprising Museum, among other places, and. Um, also Berlin's uh, memorial landscape. So if I think of each of those places uh, with, and some of the major sites that are, are located in them, they are often thought of as being coming a part of what some scholars have called a civil religion. So I, I think this is especially the case uh, for when discussing Yad Vashem. So what role does the memory of the Holocaust play in the establishment of a kind of national narrative uh, of Israel. And the uh, Yad Vashem site, which was thoroughly remodeled, redesigned in the early 2000s, is very much a narrative. It's not neutral. It starts with uh, 
uh, life of Ashkenazi Jews in Europe uh, at the beginning and then moves through the Holocaust in a spatial and chronological way uh, so that near the end of the museum, we have an appreciation of the total, the, the devastation and destruction that was visited upon uh, Europe's Jews. But then the museum continues, and at the end, one walks out onto this balcony and just onto this amazing, beautiful landscape of of, of trees, of cedar trees uh, outside uh, in the in the uh, outskirts of Jerusalem, and it's a very redemptive site, a uh, very restorative site. And so, this the narrative there, of course, is that um, that is is Israel as a response to the attempted destruction of 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 Europe's of, of Jews, uh, as a, you know, is a statement of survival and even thriving, and that becomes an important part of what some would call a civil religion as opposed to a you know, theological religion. Um, that same term has been used to think about the the role of the Holocaust in America's self-understanding. And, and uh, when one goes to the museum in Washington, D.C., the first quotes that are on the door are from U.S. soldiers who participated in the liberation of the Ordruf camp, uh, Eisenhower, a part of the um, uh, Buchenwald camp system. The, uh, the eagerness uh, in the sort of American imagination to identify with the liberator also is uh, a non-neutral way of remembering the Holocaust that uh, plays into certain notions of myth, sort of mythology that uh, America creates about itself and its role in the world. But that shouldn't obscure from the efforts the museum makes to also call attention to the ways that the United States and other Western countries failed to a step up to uh, accept Jewish refugees, to intervene uh, more uh, early and uh, forcefully to stop the Holocaust in its tracks, uh, to, um, to, uh, to uh, make the Holocaust a, a, a priority uh, in the war effort. And so, um, again, another example of a place that's not neutral. If we go to Berlin, we have a very interesting problem, and that is how does the, the site of uh, the, the city, um, the, basically one book calls, refers to Berlin as the capital of the Holocaust. It was the administrative hub of the Holocaust. How does um, a place so closely associated with the perpetrator memorialize its crimes? This is a question that James E. Young has asked in his many groundbreaking studies. And it uh, requires a different kind of response. It would be uh, quite unlike the American identification with the liberator or the sort of more redemptive ending uh, in the establishment of Israel in uh, Yad Vashem. The German case has to really focus on the devastation of loss, but also the the uh, responsibility uh, that lies with uh, perpetrators. And so uh, there can be no redemptive happy ending in, embodied in any kind of memorial museum in, uh, in Germany. The Jewish Museum in Berlin is a good example of a museum who, in its very architecture, tries to avoid uh, to, to really inscribe the permanence of loss, uh, the loss of Berlin's Jewish community, um, the, the vast majority of, of, of uh, its Jewish uh, members, 
um, by with by having a void that runs through the entire building. So there are actually parts of the building that cannot be accessed because uh, they are walled off from the rest of the museum. One has to walk around these empty spaces, and that emptiness emptiness is meant to convey the permanent loss that one has. Um, inflicted on uh, that Germany inflicted on itself uh, in in the Holocaust and then finally in Poland uh, so I, I think uh, there's a recent museum that was uh, that opened a few years ago called Pauline uh, the history uh, of um, Polish Jews which is a nearly 1,000 year history and it tries to recover and recall the the, the richness of Jewish culture in Poland it's not a primarily a Holocaust museum. Um, but if one goes to uh, a nearby museum, which is the ghetto, or rather the Warsaw Uprising Museum or the Warsaw Rising Museum, uh, there the focus is not on the Holocaust either, but rather on Polish resistance to uh, the Nazi occupation and the Holocaust figures as a part of that, but it doesn't really engage with the Holocaust as a separate event. So I think we can see in memorialization efforts in Poland very often a, a difficulty at, at coming to terms with Poland's difficult position as victims of the Third Reich and then later uh, occupied by the, the Soviet Union and uh, a system of communism imposed on it from Moscow. Uh, so there, uh, the genuine and legitimate sense of Polish victimization but also the problem of Polish perpetration. So not that the state uh, was uh, directing perpetration because the Polish state had been liquidated, but we know that many Poles participated in the persecution and uh, even murder of their Jewish neighbors, uh, as Jan T. Gross points out in his uh, groundbreaking works. So I think tourists should be attentive to the different national contexts that inform different memorial and museum sites uh, at various places. And I would encourage them to be skeptical and, and ask questions uh, and look for ambiguities because uh, there are very few places that have uh, that, you know, where, where this, this history is, is, can be told. So in such a straightforward uh, national narrative. I'm particularly curious about the redemptive narrative of Yad Vashem. Um, What's interesting too, you talk about it in the book is not only when you, you explain how you, when you come out of the museum, you, and you just explained it here, you see the Jerusalem Hills and it's very beautiful. So this idea of redemption, it's also where it's placed, right? Right near Mount Herzl. So it like, it continues the story anyhow. Um, but is, was there backlash to this redemptive narrative? Because that could, I would imagine that would be pretty, that could be troubling to some folks to see the Holocaust interpreted and presented in this way. Uh, I, I don't know if I could say backlash in particular, but I do think that it's a contested way of remembering the Holocaust. I think that uh, it's, 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 a, it's the kind of uh, implicit narrative. I mean, um, scholars refer to museums as, as narrative spaces. So uh, you, you kind of enter and proceed through a story and, and exit at the end. And so the story that's told through the visit to Yad Vashem could not be replicated somewhere else. So I, on the one hand, I think it's understood that uh, there, it's understandable why that redemptive narrative, that particular redemptive narrative is told uh, where it is. But it's also, you know, many, uh, the, the um, 
memory of the Holocaust in Israel and elsewhere um, is is can be mobilized for other issues. Uh, I think that is something that sort of haunts the edges of uh, of, uh, of places like Yad Vashem. Uh, that uh, where people may have come with questions about other kinds of events. I mean, I think in, one thinks in particular about the uh, the uh, relationship between uh, Palestinian Israelis and Jewish Israelis, the the uh, the and the occupation. I think that um, some have suggested that 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 needs to also be encountered at the museum, and by by not. Uh, acknowledging that the aspects of Israel's founding that have to do with what uh, Palestinians will call uh, the disaster, the Nakba, that um, that the, somehow that's a that's an erasure. I, I, I I'm not uh, taking a position on that. I simply I think, but I, I do think that the um, uh, that every narrative is a is a choice that includes certain elements and excludes others, and I think it's incumbent upon visitors really to bring that kind of critical lens to the place. Um, no, no memorial site, no museum can uh, capture the entirety uh, of the historical intricacies around a single event um, and and address all of the the um, issues that lie at the parameter of it. But uh, I think one can be attentive to what's what's included and what's excluded in the narrative at a museum. So we've focused most of our discussion on um, muse- like large museums and memorials. And I wanted to shift a little bit just to talk about less developed sites. I, we alluded to this before um, earlier. Um, and less developed in the sense that um, there are some memorial sites where there's nothing left, but they're but they're developed some way into a memorial site. And there are some sites that are interspersed within a city. So it just makes it different. Navigating that site is different. So I'm just wondering if you can maybe explain some of these sites and sort of what these less developed, maybe less visited, I would assume maybe, um, sites mean for Holocaust remembrance. Thinking about the the more remote sites. Uh, so I talk in particular in the chapter on on Poland uh, about the uh, the camp memorials at Sobibor and Belzec, which are both on the border uh, with um, uh, with uh, Belarus and Ukraine, respectively. And they're very difficult to reach. They're they're near small, tiny villages. There's no major uh, urban center close by. So it requires great effort to access these spaces, and I think that speaks to the seriousness uh, uh, with which visitors to these sites uh, take them, um, that they're willing to, to make the effort to find them. Um, and I think often what, what happens when one, uh, I remember my first uh, visits to Sobibor in particular, was I was stunned by the sense of desolation at the site. Uh, it was very underdeveloped as a memorial, uh, it was overgrown by nature. It's hidden in a forest, but I also found that profoundly meaningful because that was that spoke to the uh, the intended clandestineness of the Holocaust. The uh, the Nazis did not want the crimes to be discovered. The Sobibor and the other Operation Reinhardt camps were built to be temporary, uh, to be to 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 run until they had accomplished their horrible mission and then to be dismantled and, and erased, uh, often, uh, plowed under, uh, so that no trace of the crimes could be 
could be found after the war. And I found the, the sense of neglect or this underdevelopment uh, to speak to that nature of the Holocaust, but also to speak to the uh, the amnesia that has often accompanied Holocaust memory, certainly um, the desire to forget uh, is, is, is made palpable when you go to a place like that. There are presently efforts to uh, redesign and, 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 and build up the memorial site at Sobibor, including a, a permanent museum and uh, uh, other uh, installations that, of a more permanent nature. And I, I, while I understand that impulse, I also have some concern that it transformed the site into something uh, using an architectural idiom of permanence when the actual uh, original architecture that, or the, 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 the centers, the death camps, were meant to be temporary structures. Uh, we see this at the uh, present-day Belgette's Camp Memorial, which is a field of um, cement and uh, rebar, uh, a sort of stylized field of rubble um, uh, that uh, looks like it will be there for eternity. And... Um, it, while it marks as a, the site as a permanent uh, resting place for uh, the hundreds of thousands of victims who perished there, who were murdered there, I think it, um, again, alters maybe the perception of the place itself as, as something that was intended to be temporary and makes it look as if it was permanent. And I would hate to have any visitor kind of come away with a sense of um, the permanence of uh, some grim accomplishment by the Nazis. I, I think that would be uh, unfortunate. Um, if I turn to the to the question of dispersal throughout an urban landscape, I think that's uh, an, also a, a fascinating phenomenon. Um, Berlin has places throughout the city that mark um, uh, um, deportation sites that um, that were, where synagogues once stood, where neighborhoods uh, that had thriving Jewish communities, um, uh, buildings where where the you know or, or the location where the buildings of the Gestapo and the SS and uh, uh, all of Himmler's uh, 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 administrative apparatus were located. So dispersed throughout the city. Um, and so you have, uh, for example, the, the stumbling stones uh, that the artist Gunter Demnisch has, has placed in many European cities, uh, certainly plenty of them in Berlin, that remind you as a visitor how the Holocaust was not just a very centralized event, but was very dispersed and, and how it could pervade a cityscape and, and indeed an entire uh, country, uh, uh, the geography of an entire country. So I think um, becoming aware of the variety of sites that one can visit that memorialize the Holocaust uh, also helps one appreciate the profound expanse of the Holocaust. It's bureaucratic outreach. It's the, the cultural devastation that, that brought about. Uh, one can say the same thing about um, sites in Krakow or, or Warsaw, uh, which uh, may not be easy to find, in particular the ghetto wall in Warsaw. There are very few remnant uh, pieces of the wall standing, but with the right guide or the right uh, homework uh, on the part of the tourist, one can find locations dispersed throughout the city that had some bearing on the history, uh, on, on the unfolding of the Holocaust and the experience of the Holocaust. And so I think that 
uh, is, a, is something that tur- tourism in particular is uniquely able to do is, is give visitors a sense of the spatial reach of the Holocaust uh, and uh, help one try to begin to comprehend just the enormity of the event and all of its meaning. Um, we're approaching the end of our interview, but I have two final questions. Um, what this, this one's a bit general, but what can we learn about collective memory and Holocaust remembrance through an examination of Holocaust memorials and museums? Yeah, I think that what we can learn is that uh, the nature of Holocaust memory or collective memory in general is not fixed. It's fluid. Uh, it changes over time. Uh, it has to address the needs of the present uh, as well as recall the events of the past. And so even though we often think of memorials and museums as permanent structures and uh, uh, that will enshrine a particular memory, and that's certainly the intent of sort of more classical monumental uh, national memorial sites, uh, the Washington Monument or, or uh, you know, any of the, those kinds of sites, um, I think it's incumbent upon Holocaust memorial sites to reflect the, uh, uh, the evolving nature of our knowledge about the Holocaust. Uh, so the evolving uh, questions that we have about the Holocaust. So if I think, for example, of uh, you know, the early years of Holocaust memorial sites, um, a number of things have changed. First of all, the Cold War context of Holocaust memorials in which the Holocaust became a, a, an illustration of the evils either of totalitarianism from a Western perspective or capitalist in fact, inflected fascism uh, from the perspective of, of the Eastern European memorials. We've left that behind. And, but at the same time, in those early years, often, particularly in, in the Eastern memorials, the, the, the unique uh, experience, the fate of Jewish victims of the Holocaust was uh, radically underemphasized or, or virtually erased. And it's only been uh, since... Uh, I would say the um, in earnest since the 80s that uh, and particularly after the uh, end of the Cold War in the 90s that these sites have really come to terms and acknowledged the, the that the vast majority of victims at at these sites were were uh, Euro- European Jews. Um, I think another uh, thing that we have observed over time is that uh, the role of imagery at these sites has undergone a lot of change. Uh, I think. The uh, early reliance on the typical atrocity image of mounds of corpses, for example, or emaciated uh, survivors has tended to uh, uh, be replaced in more recent times by more uh, less, less shocking uh, kinds of images that don't risk alienating a viewer, but uh, instead try to speak to... Um, some some other aspect of the Holocaust that's uh, you know that that uh, requires reflection and and uh, cognition. So documents about deportations or uh, accoutrements of of as what Barbie Zeller calls accoutrements of murder. So uh, uh, cans of Zyklon B or the prisoner uniforms, but without reobjectifying the victims of the Holocaust by 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 obje- objectifying their image once again through often through the perpetrator lens. So those standards of, of memorialization change over time. Uh, the questions we have about the Holocaust change over time. I think uh, we are much more concerned 
than we used to be with the question of the perpetrator. How is it that uh, somebody can participate in an event like the Holocaust? So the 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 with the, while the shift, the, the emphasis, the, the, the attention always needs to rest with the victims. I think we uh, need to pay attention to the perpetrator also and, and telling that, that the, the trying to come to some understanding of the nature of the perpetrator at Holocaust memorial sites is a relatively more recent event. So I think uh, all of those um, can be discovered, those, those, the, the ever-changing nature of Holocaust memory itself can be observed if one engages with the history of these sites. And that's why I also hope that the sites themselves tell the story of not only of the Holocaust and the events that happened there, but of their own history as memorials, because I think that's a very rich uh, and informative uh, history to also share with the public. So we've reached the end of our interview, but I have one final question for you. What are you working on now? Well, I am still interested in in the question of of Holocaust memory and and tourism's role in it in particular, but I'm also becoming more, uh, I'm I'm very interested in the way that uh, memorialization of the Holocaust has influenced uh, uh, efforts to to come to terms with other uh, catastrophic events, and in particular with other genocides. So I am beginning to explore and study the ways in which uh, genocide memorials uh, related to, say, the Armenian genocide or the Rwandan genocide or to uh, apartheid in South Africa or slavery in the U.S. Um, To what extent are those memorialization efforts shaped by or informed by uh, efforts to memorialize the Holocaust? Um, Do the same questions about what's appropriate to show or what's not appropriate to show, uh, what can be understood and what cannot be understood. All of these kinds of questions. I'm very curious to see how uh, these kinds of questions uh, uh, are shared actually across other kinds of catastrophic events. So um, that's I'm at the beginning stages of that. Uh, it will take me probably quite some time to come to a, uh, I, I hope to develop a book project out of it, but in the short term, I'm hoping to, have an article to or two to be completed within the year. Um, and I imagine. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project and a, an interesting, I guess, segue or continuation of, uh, of postcards from Auschwitz. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I hope so. I, I'm, I, it's, it's a difficult topic, but it's one that I, I think requires engagement and there's a lot to learn from it. So I'm, I'm yes, absolutely. Take it on. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me today about your book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and thoroughly enjoyed this interview. So thank you so much. Um, Postcards from Auschwitz, Holocaust Tourism and the Meaning of Remembrance is out now. And I highly recommend it. It's a super fascinating and intriguing read. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Lindsay. I appreciated the conversation. Thank you. <laughs>